Welcome to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. Over the years of this program, there have been hundreds of guests through the studio, many African-American entrepreneurs and artists. This month, February, Black History Month, we're going to feature some of the more compelling guests that we've featured on Up In Your Business, ranging from activists to artists and entrepreneurs to entertainers. We hope you'll stay tuned for the whole month of Up In Your Business, either on the radio, on YouTube, or on the website flagandbanner.com. Just click radio show. Tonight's edition of Up In Your Business features the arts, broadcasting them, in the case of John Kane, creating them, in the case of Chris James, and displaying them, in the case of Garbo Hearn. Please stay tuned. You ready? Yes. Up in Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of FlagandBanner.com. Through storytelling and conversational interviews, this weekly radio show and podcast offers listeners an insider's view into the commonalities of successful people and the ups and downs of risk-taking. And now it's time for Carrie McCoy to get all up in your business. Thank you, Sun Gray. First up in this program about the arts in the African-American community in central Arkansas, the Little Rock legend, Mr. John Kane. A man who has seen a lot, the Southern oppression of Jim Crow laws, the Kennedy-Cuban Missile Crisis, the Vietnam War, the formation of LBJ's Great Society, which encompassed the Civil Rights Movement, Watergate, and the dot-com boom. Through all this, John's career has stayed founded in radio. His job, his first job, in 1960, was working as an engineer and overnight disc jockey at Little Rock's R&B station, KLO, an AM station before the industry's move to FM. This beginning led Mr. Kane to become a familiar voice in central Arkansas for over half a century. Today, John is program director of the community radio station, KABF, FM 88.3, and host of KUAR's 52nd Street Jazz, 89 FM. In Little Rock, Arkansas. In addition, he launched the John Kane Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to preserving African American culture and history in Arkansas. This foundation works closely with Arkansas Flag and Banner Sister Building on 9th Street, the Mosaic Templars Cultural Center, an African American museum whose mission is aligned with John's. Welcome to the table, the legendary Mr. John Kane. Well, Carrie. Thank well, you. Tell us how you came to be the program director at KABF Public Radio. Once I determined to uh, do some positive things about things I never thought I could do things about before, but realizing that I had to change from commercial radio to public radio to do it, that was the beginning of a preservation initiative for me. It's how I became a preservationist bit by bit. But to start that, it was at KALO when I went and asked for a position, not to be described as a top 40 disc jockey, but realizing there was an opportunity there because although it was a small station, it was one of the first signals in the city, I think the first, about 1928, maybe 29, AM station, 1,000 watts in the daytime, 500 at night. So here I am, midnight to... 5 a.m., doing basically the kind of programming that changed the perception of African Americans, mostly me, because I could reach out and get the product. People were looking for places to get that kind of stuff, black theater, not comedic stuff that made us look like buffoons, but stuff that really opened up their souls and they could express themselves. That's how I really got into radio. So the artist was the focal point. It wasn't about me. I'm basically an engineer right at night reading meters, but I got five hours. On the, ra- on the on radio? On the radio. I put everything in there you could imagine. Jazz, blues, rock, Captain Beefheart. I might play anything, but it changed the dynamics of top 40 radio. Before that, there were no ratings for nighttime radio. After Sonny Phillips and KAAY and those guys came on and they cut back on the power at sunset, 
they assumed that there were no 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 audiences out there. I wound up with a, with captured audiences, nurses, the professionals working at night, people out and about at night. We extended storytelling. What I had on my side was a father who fought the Second World War, but he was a terrific storyteller. He could hold you spellbound on just telling you about something that happened to him down on the street. And so that was just an extension of this whole thing, like, hey, I could do that. But you didn't storytell. No, you I've never been books. a storyteller. Although you sound like one right now, don't you? Well... You know, I experienced a lot, and that sort of made me aware of how you conversate. Did you say I have a spiritual life? What did you say? Well, it, it made me really aware of what I could do with thinking things through and getting a focus on how would I present myself to a job situation. I wanted a life change. I'm in the South, not many opportunities. I grew up in the country, 12 miles from here, Wrightsville. I just wanted to come in and be a different person. I was a quick study, always have been. So in school, I liked civics because it gave really? me a sense of how business economics work the kind of politics that go with that stuff. So from that, I wanted to explore the world. I was about ready to run away from home. At what age? Uh, and I just pestered my mom and dad until they just signed off the papers, and I became a sailor at 17. No way. Mm-hmm. Why is that not in the bio you sent me that you were a sailor? Now, that would have been great to know. Well, Where for who? Not the Navy. Yes. Oh, I United see. United States Navy. They let you go into the Navy at seventeen. And how long did you stay in the Navy? Just four years. But you saw the world. It opened me up to everything. So, John, you already told me you were born in Wrightsville, Arkansas, but you haven't lived in Arkansas all your life. There was a time you did community theater and jazz preservation mm-hmm. in, I think, I read Alabama and Georgia. Birmingham, where I did most of it, darling. Yeah, Birmingham, Alabama. Tell us a little bit about why that happened. Well, I'm at at KALO. We have one of the top uh, African-American radio people that grew up in Pine Bluff, Larry Hayes, returned from Milwaukee and took over KALO as general manager. He stayed a couple of three years, and as he was exiting, he was going to Birmingham, Alabama to bring WENN programming up to what he called Afrocentric. He was using this term long before. Yeah. And and because of the way the, the, the hosts on radio, the top 40 jocks did, there wasn't any room for real cultural stuff. So he asked me to go because as I was, as he was coming in, I'm late night. He is the first person that come in every day. I'm working six nights a week. I'm going in at midnight, getting off at 6 a.m., go home, get a couple of hours of sleep, and go to work. Larry Hayes comes in. He is the early morning drive host. Before marketing and ratings were done, they were not taking overnight things. Immediately when I got in that slot and changed the format to something that people really appreciated. Just say change the world. Just go ahead and say change the world. Change the world. And... He realized that, so as he's moving to Alabama, he said, will you come with me? I said, only if I got a slot for jazz. It has to be all night, so I do the programming. We made that agreement. That's how I got there. When I got there, the community theater was big, Blackfire Community Theater down there. A lot of people were living in Buffalo in the east, New York and around, were from Alabama, were coming back home. So we had actors, musicians, these cats out here working the major venues. They had a, they were in the uh, process of developing um, uh, Jazz Hall of Fame. I became part of the promotion of that on the radio, helping to produce jazz shows. So we basically just 
had a paradigm shift, I guess you want to say it. Did, but you didn't stay. You came back to Little Rock in But 19, I stayed eight years. Eight years. Eight years. It was eight years I got. Community theater and all that preservation stuff. Did you do any acting? I was the chairman of the board of the Black Power Theater, so I did You're always the chairman of the board somewhere. <laughs> I did a lot of fundraising, and I was good at producing because I just worked hard to, to get good shows and get musicians' gigs that were not there before. And so that jazz community started to grow, man. It just impacted all of the other art disciplines. When I went down there, Carrie, I had a choice of living in the city, Birmingham proper, or uh, the verbs. So what I did, darling, I rode into the city every night, five miles on a bicycle. Just like you are today. Mm-hmm. And, and why so, did you do that? Well, I had to prove a couple of things to myself that I'm going to Birmingham, Alabama, and I really need to be just dedicated. I couldn't rely on somebody else. I had to do this the way I could do it. I know I can do it, and I just have to prove it to the people. That was the easy part. Uh, it did become uh, overwhelming as I started to interact with a lot of different disciplines, artists, you know, sculptors. So I had to change my way of going to work. Now, I'm getting up at 1030 at night. I'm going to work. On a bike? On a bike. Why not a car? I had to prove that I could get there on There weren't any. I did. I can ride a bicycle. I rode a bicycle for all the years I was a kid. So I, I used to ride from Riceville to Alexander. You're the original millennial. So, so I just had to prove it to myself. It's not like I got to get there. And you weren't afraid. It's so late at night in Birmingham, Alabama. They're not exactly really nice to black people down there. Well, I'm a night person, especially back I then. actually, yeah, I actually live on both sides of the the clock. The clock. When I say the clock, I'd rather be up at night doing things when I got myself just alone. I can focus. I'm not interrupted. I think things through. At night. You're a night person. I'm a night person. So I've always been like that. You said about your early days on radio, and I quote, I featured material that you don't hear normally. It was overnight radio that really gave me the opportunity to become a preservationist of sorts a musicologist, a mixologist, or whatever you want to call it. So when I think of a preservationist, I think of, um, you know, buildings. You know, like you'd say the Mosaic Templar. Are you thinking about music, or are you using preservationists for buildings, too? Everything that is... Old that you want to that's say. That's an art of craft discipline, because that's what it is. I mean, it's a, it's a... It's a vehicle that anybody that wants to dedicate themselves to a specific part of that, you know, you make it work for yourself. It's just your dedication to make it work. So I, I just, I just embrace it all. Mm-hmm. You, you have a specific genre in music you like, and I think it's jazz. It's jazz. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you've seen, and you're talking about old school jazz, not Kenny G. Not cool jazz or whatever they call the mm-hmm. stuff there because smooth jazz. Yeah, yeah, smooth jazz because if it's not um, intertwined with the the eras and timelines of jazz itself, the originals, the original, the 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 older musicians don't really accept that as a new genre. That's like country music. There's a old school country music, and then there's the new country music. And, you know, if you're a purist, you like the old yeah. country music. Mm-hmm. So I became an audio power purist kind of person. Uh, You've seen a lot of changes in radio. Uh, what did a studio look like back then when you first started compared to today? This, our studio? No, or? all studios. Did the headsets look like this? Did the boards look like this? Has it gotten, has it changed much? Yeah. The boards didn't have sliders. They had knobs. You turn the volume up, you know, just things like that. They were not composites like these materials are now. Plus, we've got audio. We've got call in. Did you have call in back then? I think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had call ins. We you did everything. We did just like we record the the transmitter reader. We had a phone connected to the transmitter. 
So it really hasn't changed a lot. Mm -hmm. The industry really is one of the industries that hasn't changed a lot, except for we use computers now. Yeah. How would you navigate or work the board if you didn't have a computer? Because Tim looks at the computer all the time. Well, me being old school, if I'm not hands-on, I'm not going to look at a new attachment that you got to learn how it works. Mm-hmm. I know how practically to get a sound out of any channel without a computer. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's preservation, too. It, I refuse still, to let go of it because there's there's sound quality that really holds people's attention. Okay, I'm going to give a warning. For the next few minutes, you and I are going to have a candid conversation, an uncomfortable conversation for some. So this is a warning to our listeners. But anybody that knows me at all knows that I'm a safe person. This is a safe place. This is not to say that everyone has to agree with me or John. After all, this is America, and everybody gets to have their opinion. So let's start with what I think is the hardest question first, and then we'll lighten up. Something people don't like to talk about is racism, mm-hmm. and it goes both ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, behind yeah. the Taborian Hall, I found out the hard way. I'm the white girl that bought a significantly important African-American building, and I, I almost want to say that it kind of hurts my feelings. I wouldn't worry about that. You're, done, you're doing the right thing. Were it not for you, Carrie, that building would not be there. See, that's what I want someone to tell me. Thank you, John. You and I are both interviewed in the Dreamland documentary that's airing on PBS. And I see you every week at this radio station. So we have become friends and sometimes talk and sometimes rant about black and white relations in America today. Our discussions often end with you saying, we can't forget our history lest we repeat it. And me saying... White people want to quit feeling guilty about what our ancestors did and move on. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I can. Uh, Racism is a many-layered thing. It begins with tribalism, which becomes eventually classism. You know, that whole thing of dividing people up so people want certain things. Uh once I really got the definition down of what this is, instead of hating, I just decided to embrace everything. The things that I don't like, you know, I just get away from it. I want to, I'm looking for the positive. You really are. So rather than, than be fighting with people about my rights, I'm just going to do what I think is the right thing. So I can embrace it all and make a decision that way, not have popular opinion change my way of living. Mm-hmm. When, I, when I say that, I mean, uh, that's why I want to stay close to nature. So when you see me walking down the street, I'm not actually looking for a ride. I'm actually assimilating nature. So don't offer him a ride if you see him. Don't offer me a ride. I'm going to get where I'm going. And live uh, forever. On a snow day, I might walk three miles to get here when other people can't or won't come. So it's, I'm, I'm, I'm driven by nature, really. Mm-hmm. Most people think I'm just being casual about it, mm-hmm. but I'm not. Mm-hmm. Uh, I prefer cooking my own organic food the way I want to eat Man, it. he is an 80-year-old millennial. After the 60s and 70s revolution, I think many people thought equality for all at last. I know I felt that way. I know LBJ thought that when he tried to create what he called a great society. LBJ's quote is as follows. A great society is to build a great society, a place where the meaning of man's life matches the marvels of man's labor. You are exactly an example of that because you work hard and you've had a wonderful life. But shortly after LBJ passed the 1965 Voting Rights Act, became the era of riots and destructions of property by African-Americans on their own business districts and neighborhoods. You were a young man living during that time. It was a little before my time. Can you tell us how you felt and give us your theory on what happened? I was uh, scared about, you know, it happening in my town. When things are, when you're removed from things, Detroit on fire, it wasn't as serious, but although I'm getting friends returning home, because 
They lost their jobs. They lost things. They wanted. They made a reverse uh, migration. Oh. See, the migration of blacks to the large cities went on for about 70 years. How many years? 70. Yeah. And so when LBJ implemented that policy and, and stuff and, and people didn't get what they wanted, that's when the large cities went on fire. What okay. did they not get? That they wanted. I don't know. The, I have no the, idea. The program wasn't implemented immediately. Yeah, he made they made the legislation happen, but it was ten years after before a lot of that stuff was actually implemented in the neighborhoods that they were, in places where they needed to help people. Oh, really? Yeah. For instance, in 1962, I saw Grambling College football team on TV. That was a major breakthrough. That marching band in 1975, I was calling football for Gremlin College on the radio. Oh, my gosh. I am going to rewrite your So bio. I did that about five years. The thing I'm trying to show you is, yeah, he implemented legislation, but it took a while. And so people like me waiting to see this happen, it never happened. I was still doing the same things I wanted to do, just striking out on my own. Legendary broadcaster John Kane during this edition of Up In Your Business, focusing on African-American artists. In just a moment, we'll hear from Chris James. Have you been following the progress of Dreamland Ballroom upstairs from FlagAndBanner.com? Well, we're getting close to the reopening. Truthfully, assuming everything goes according to plan, the reopening is going to happen in the fall of this year. There's so much to do before we reopen. While the construction projects are going to help prepare the ballroom for public accessibility and safety, there are a bunch of smaller projects that we could really use your help on in this historic downtown Little Rock building. Over the next year, we're going to schedule volunteer work days, painting floors, restringing old lights, putting up new lights, decorating, lots of little projects. Help us give the ballroom a real facelift. By the way, have you got any old furniture or pieces that you'd like to get rid of that would look great in the historic Dreamland ballroom? Donate them to the Friends of Dreamland. We could use them to decorate the box seats, the balcony, the green rooms, and stage left and stage right wings. Please keep in touch with us by signing up for our email list. You can do that by following us on Facebook and Instagram. You'll also learn when these workdays are going to be scheduled and how to check in on the progress of those campaigns. Thanks in advance for your help. Our show tonight, Up in Your Business with Carrie McCoy, is featuring artists in the African-American community. And John Kane, legendary broadcaster, was our first guest. Now, Chris James. He is well known for his achievement as a national award-winning spoken word poet laureate. But like so many creative people, he is more than that. Chris is a playwright, educator, photographer, author, producer, TED Talk speaker, and survivor as a young black man fathering a child at 16 he has walked the walk of hopelessness and homelessness and now talks the talk of empowerment as he pays his experience and knowledge forward through a variety of artistic mediums the name of your website is called the chris james journey mm-hmm. the chris james journey.com which is a really apt name for your website and is really the core of everything you do. So uh, let's just start with this journey today. And let's start at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Tell us about your family. Uh, man, I grew up with um, my mother and my two brothers, and uh, and that was it. You know, family now. Um, I'm the father of five beautiful children. Uh, my twin daughters are, are right over there in the next studio looking at us. Um yeah, you know. But you, mother told you mm-hmm. when you were young, uh-huh. that most black men by the age of twenty-five will be either in dead or in jail. Oh yeah, America taught me that. You know, uh, the world taught me that. You know, and I, and I seen that. You know, all my life. You know, uh, I'm still seeing that. You know, uh, just being an educator and just being a community activist. You know, I'm seeing that truth. You know, uh, and it's becoming, it's, it's a reality. You know, a lot of young people, you know, black boys and girls are, you know, either dying physically way before the age of 25 
or die mentally and emotionally. Uh, becoming parents at 13, 14, 15, uh, or dealing with, with traumatizing situations that, that ruin their lives mentally and, mentally and emotionally. Um, so, yeah, you know, and that's, the, and that's one of the main reasons I do what I do today uh, because I realize that so many people who come from where I come from are dealing with a, a level of mental illness because of the form of poverty we come from. Those are the issues that are in your poetry. How do you talk about that without making people defensive? Well, I don't think people will get defensive about me speaking about it because everything I speak about, I've lived. You know, again, I was 16 when I became a dad. You know, I was uh, 16 when both of my brothers went to prison for 25 and 40 years. Um, You know, I was fatherless and still fatherless, you know, at age 30. Um, You know, so everything I'm speaking about, you know, I've experienced. And I think being that I have experienced it, um, it allows young people. So when I go into that alternative school with kids who are only there because their probation officers told them they had to be, uh, or kids who are angry or currently dealing with their, their level of trauma, they're able to receive me a lot differently than they probably would receive um, you, mm-hmm. you know, uh, because I've experienced it. So they're more willing to hear me tell them that it's possible to overcome what they're experiencing. And um, and I talk about it because I think it's important. It's important to identify your struggles so you can first cr- so you can then create solutions to overcome, uh, because if you don't see that. That uh, that stand in your neighborhood and selling drugs, or breaking in houses, and and having babies over and over and over and over by different men and blase blase. Like if you don't identify that that's a problem in your community, you're gonna continue to live in that cycle of problems. Uh, so through my poetry, through my art, through my stage plays, through my books, I'm letting you know that this right here is harming us as a people, as a community. And and so yeah, so I, so I don't think it's a challenge at all uh, or as the f- people become defensive I think people become aware and they become enlightened when I shed light on it so when I met you you and I were both at the Maya Angelo project and uh, fundraiser which gives scholarships to young people to go to college and I you were a guest poet yes ma'am and you got up and you started reading poetry do you remember which one you read? And I started crying. And I thought, golly, this wine's really good. You're crying. <laughs> What's wrong with me? <laughs> but then you said that you, uh, you told me, you said, well, later I read this to a bunch of teachers yeah. in class. And they all started crying, too. And if mm-hmm. they're drinking at school, then we got really problems with the education system. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think you cry because it, it, you're human first. Do you remember yeah. it? Yeah, I do remember can you. you remember. Can you do it? The poem? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you cash out me $5. No, I'm just a joke. <laughs> <laughs> throw him five dollars. Somebody I'm a throw him five dollars. No, Golly, is yeah, I got you though. Um, so the All piece right. uh, was called, What's it called? Um, "Imperfect Picture," uh, and I wrote this piece, man, like 2012. Uh, so it's about to be eight years ago. Uh, eight years now since I wrote it. Yeah, um, I just jumped right into it. We ready? Do it. All right, cool beans. Man, you can check out this the video to this poem uh, on my YouTube, The Chris James Journey on YouTube and all that good stuff. Welcome to the city of death where they don't live long and the children are grown by the time they 15 years old. And the summers are cold and the winters are hot and sunshine don't last that long. Welcome to the life of a child in the ghetto. Imagine, imagine gunshots from the pistol of a young gangster being powered by poverty and anger. Aim in the chamber aimlessly in the open area where children run and play with no regard to danger. After all, they was just hanging until cold still penetrated the youthful bodies of three black boys playing ball on the court to 21. Imagine a week later, the 15-year-old shooter shooting him own self in the head. Neighbor taking her garbage and found him dead in an alleyway where his blood stain still lays beside the dumpster. I guess he felt life was best unlived. I saw the reaper keeping close watch, watching his time on his watch for the time to take the soul of a son 
son of a single mother. I saw all their mothers crying and screaming and jumping over the church pews while the pastor preached from the pulpit. Friends and cousins wearing t-shirts that read, gone but not forgotten, knowing they'll forget them as soon as time has gone by. The only people left hurting is these mothers who are crying and dying for a chance to see their children alive one last time. Is it ironic that death Stay close to young lives, like pimps to pros, crap fiends to dope, slave masters to rope, ready to choke the life of the black beauty. See, these streets keep calling, and sons turn ghetto soldiers keep falling into the traps of trap houses, trapping their adolescents with promises of respect and imaginary stripes of honor, and a little bit of money to keep their mothers hungry, children from going hungry. Hell, it's a win-win to them. Those who knows what it means to be poor, I mean poor, peruse with the raggedy converse shoes those kids and tell me what would you do if your lights and water were off and you were hungry and stinking what would you do one of my students came to school last week and he slept the entire day I said hey man why you don't come to my class and sleep your whole life away he said it's more peaceful in a classroom full of kids cursing than it is at my home and I just stood there with no response to his pain he woke up and said Mr. James what would you do? Imagine a young girl pregnant with a third child in the 10th grade. She said her daddy was the father of all three, but he didn't want to claim him or feed him. These words flowed off her lips easy, as if it was a normal situation to be the baby mama of a rapist, but she keep coming to school every Monday. Ain't that something? That life can be so full of chaos, but still you find the courage to live on? It's amazing how God keep giving birth to hope and faith, born from a womb of obstacles thought not to be overcome, like slaves singing songs to the moonlight at night. Follow the dragon God. Negro spirituals telling us to hold on. We can make it if we move by faith, but not by faith alone. These children at the bottom of the barrel are our mission at hand. Grab their hands instead of saying, we can't save them all. We can't save them all. We can't save them all so many times until we convince our own selves that we can't save them all. If we can't, then who will? Nobody. Because we are on the front line. The expected heroes of their adolescence, and they are waiting for us to save them. This picture is painted for viewing, so view it on this canvas created by young restless children who are dying for the opportunity to live, with the potential to be more than drug dealers, crackheads, prisoners, or dead. I can't imagine giving up on these beautiful young people who were burning with brilliance because so many have already given up on themselves. And sitting back watching them die off slowly is no different from being a murderer. So I often ask myself, am I a part of the solution or the continuance to this 21st century genocide? That's that piece. Thank y'all. Amen, amen. That was Chris James. What's the name of that song, poem? Uh, Imperfect Picture. That is an imperfect picture. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with the man Arkansas Times newspaper calls one of Arkansas's top visionary, Chris James, educator and renowned poet. And if you like what you just heard, stay tuned. More after the break. Has winter been hard on the hardware that you use for your beautiful flag displays? Are you building or repairing or even lighting your flagpole for the first time? Well, at FlagAndBanner.com, our selection of flagpole hardware and lights and pole accessories and even patriotic flag display cases offer everything you need. Visit our flagpole section at FlagAndBanner.com. There's lots of discount codes available. And for commercial, residential, indoor, and ceremonial poles, we have everything you need. There's even a very special section that deals with the trade show accessories you might need because FlagAndBanner.com can make you look great at any trade show display. FlagAndBanner.com. We're ready for your shopping experience and we're ready to answer any questions you might have. Watch for the chat feature to pop up. This episode of Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy is featuring artists from the African-American community in central Arkansas. We've heard from broadcaster John Kane. We're in the middle of a conversation with poet Chris James, we'll hear about one of his TED Talks here in just a moment. And still to come, Garbo Hearn on displaying art. Back now to Chris James. 
So, Overcoming the Odds is the name of the TED Talk that you gave. Mm-hmm. And you gave four steps to success. Let's mm-hmm. speak to each one of them and tell us why they're important. I'll just name them real quick. Believe, go to the mountaintop, mm-hmm. jump, and focus. Let's start with believe. Um, I talked about the importance uh, of believing uh, in my TED Talks because I think the first step um, to success, you know, just like when you started the flag and banner company with $400, you know, um, somebody else probably would have looked at you like, that's crazy. I'll tell you the one they thought was crazy when I bought the Taborian Hall downtown. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That was a burned out building when I bought it. Uh-huh. Go ahead. I'm sorry. You know, but it, but you were crazy enough to believe in yourself, you know, and uh, I, I was listening to, uh, 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 what was it? Uh, an Apple commercial with uh, Steve Jobs. He was giving a speech, and uh, he talked about the people who are crazy enough to believe that they can change the world are usually the ones that do, you know. And and I and I'm a strong believer that you have to believe that much into your, in yourself to be successful. And for a long time, I believed in myself. And so I used the quote in my TED talks that Peter Pan was told that if he believes and thinks happy thoughts, he can fly. And uh, there are a lot of folks who never get an opportunity to fly in life because they simply don't believe in themselves. So how do you want somebody to, to believe in you or to invest in your idea, to invest time in listening to your ideas or your dreams when you don't wholeheartedly believe in them yourself? Um, so I think that's the first step to being successful. Like you got to believe it, no matter how much you you doubt yourself, or no no matter how much negative things you've experienced in your life, no matter how much trauma, no matter how uh, rich you're not. Right. No matter how much support you don't have immediately, you got to believe. Right. When I opened my art gallery, um, November 2014, um, the House of Art, there were, a lot of folks didn't believe that it was possible. But Chris Rock said that people will ride past you. Right. While you're on the side of the road with a broke down car. But once you get out of that car and start pushing yourself, pushing that car yourself. Watch people pull over and start helping you. Because once people see that, that you believe in your own vision, they'll start standing behind you. And I've experienced that with every project I've ever done. Once people saw I was for real about it, they got behind me. Because, oh, he believes in himself. He's a visionary. A visionary, a power of positive thinking is kind of what you're saying. Yeah. You've got to talk yourself up. Uh-huh. you got to believe. You know, you got to believe that you are able to do. And then the next one? Go to the mountaintop. Oh, man. Come on now. Go to the mountain. Right, I'm writing these down so I can remember what I used to talk about in my in that 2015 TED Talks. Uh, man, so go to the mountaintop. I think I heard that quote uh, from Steve Harvey. He talked about going to the mountaintop, and then I kind of paraphrased it from there. Uh, but I took that because you will never know if your wings work. So, so this is the way I look at it. We all have wings. Mm-hmm. We all are... We all have the potential to be birds, but like Maya Angelou talked about, some of us are caged birds, right? Mm-hmm. And and you will never know if your wings work if you don't go to that mountaintop and just jump, right? And often, sometimes, we, we go to that mountaintop, we take the risk, right? That's what the mountaintop jumping from the mountaintop is all about. Mm-hmm. All it means is taking the risk, right? And Mark Zuckerberg says that the only risk you don't, the only risk is the risk that you don't take, right? So you will never know if your wings don't work if you don't jump off that mountaintop, right? And sometimes we jump off that mountaintop and then we just give up. We just fall to the ground and bam because we because we didn't know how to fly the first time. Mm-hmm. But that's the thing about flying. Even, even little birds, when they're pushed from the nest the first time, a lot of times they just fall. But that, that mama bird make them get back up so they can learn and they can keep trying to work those wings until you know how to master that flight. You can't just jump and expect to be fully sown. You got to take that risk. You know, so, so I believe wholeheartedly in jumping off that mountaintop so you, can, so you can see what it feels like. And jumping off the mountaintop can be scary. It can be uncomfortable. And, and anything that's great, that's major, is going to be uncomfortable. Like, like you right now being at the beginning of your success, of anybody's success, like it's going to be uncomfortable. But success comes in mastering your discomfort. That's good. Success comes in mastering your discomfort. Mm. I have a friend who says you sh- if you're not uh, getting out of your comfort zone every week, you're not living. Exactly. 
Yeah. It seems a lot excessive to me. I don't want to do it every week. <laughs> uh, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe once a month. <laughs> once a year. Yeah, yeah. My mother used to say about me, she'd say, Carrie, I just, she'd say, Carrie, you just jump off buildings and build your wings on the way down. Yeah. That really spoke to me when I saw that in your TED Talk. So that was go to the mountaintop, think big, believe in yourself, believe, dream, believe that you can do it, dream big, go to the mountaintop, take that risk, get up there, climb up to that mountain, Mm -hmm. and then jump off. That was your third one, was to jump off. And your last one was focus. Yeah. You will fall to the ground if you don't start focusing on how to fly. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And also, it's easy to forget what your focus is. You got to focus on your focus, you know? You you said that once you started being successful, that old girlfriends old buddies all these people started coming around all these old ways started coming up and you're like i had to get focused again mm-hmm. well that happened to me man like uh, i remember when i joined the military i went off the basic training uh after high school well so i joined the army after high school and i, I remember coming back and uh and being at the movie theater uh with my old friends you know and them getting into again i'm fresh back from basic training maybe a week or two and I'm a I'm an American soldier now, right? And then they get into a group fight with another group of dudes, and my homeboy got knocked out like he on the ground, and I'm like right here, and it's like I'm not I can't jump in that because I'm focused on my focus. I'm focused on getting out of the ghetto, out of poverty, right? So I can in turn get my kids out of that. So I can. So when my brothers get out of prison in 25 and 40 years, they won't have to come back to that, right? I'm focused on my focus, and it's easy to get distracted because I. People you love will will distract you from your focus, especially when, when when, you know, and it's human for people to be jealous, you know. That's a human. That's a human thought, human behavior, you know, and 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 they will unintentionally sometimes distract you, like. You about to work today, bro? On your dream? You sure you don't want to come kick it with us? Right? So it's easy to, to, to get up. You sure you don't want to come smoke a blunt with us? You sure? We got like three girls over here. You sure <laughs> you don't want to go? Right? So it's easy to get, to get distracted by things that you used to do with things you used to be a part of. Like, Carrie, when you first got married, you know, I, I saw them pictures of you in the, in the magazine. I knew you was you, you was a hot mama. Thank beautiful. You. He's still beautiful, you know. Thank you. But but I knew when you when you when you probably first got married, you were focused on on your man. As soon as you got married and you was working on being happy, some of the old dudes started hitting you up like, Karen, what's up, girl? What's your fine self?" You know? Cuz so, so th- th- oh, right? And that's because that's what happens when you focus on your focus, right? Those old distractions just start coming out of nowhere. But you stay focused on your focus and now 30, 40 years later, you got these these beautiful sons, right? You got mm-hmm. that beautiful business. You got mm-hmm. it's a beautiful life, you know, because you stay focused on your focus, and it, and it ain't always perfect. I know that, but yeah. but the overall, y'all made it happen, and y'all raised these children together, and y'all made it work. We did. Um, I, I, I'm f- I, he's brought back memories. I just got flustered there for a minute. I was like, oh, well, well, hey, yeah, Larry did it. Try to hit me back up, didn't he? <laughs> And the best kind of art always creates an emotional reaction. This episode of Up In Your Business is featuring artists from the African-American community. And next up, gallery owner Garbo Hearn. Founder and visionary of Hearn Fine Art Gallery, Hearn Fine Art Consulting and Appraisal Services, and Pyramid Arts Books and Custom Framings. And I just found out you have a uh, auction house. Yes, with my husband. I know. All of this is with your husband. All of this is with him. The consortium. Um, so now we're going to move into how you decided on art as a career. Moved to Arkansas and realized there was a void, uh, especially as it relates to African-American culture. So henceforth, we started Pyramid. It was Pyramid Gallery. Yeah, I saw So that. we've changed our name over the years as the business has evolved. Uh, we showcase primarily prints and work by local African-American artists. We moved quickly into, we added a bookstore and the service of custom picture framing because whatever I framed, nobody liked the mat. They wanted to change. So the customer service person that I am, I was like, Mm -hmm. I'll change it and I'll make it happen. So I was spending a lot more time at the framer than I was at my business. So 
we ended up buying uh, a frame shop that went out of business, their supplies. And then we ended up hiring a framer and henceforth we became custom picture framers. And then of course, books are just the, the source of any knowledge is power. You got to read for yourself and having a bookstore was so important to our business to help traffic and just the whole educational process of being a platform for local, regional, and national authors and artists. So it just kind of melded together. So the the pyramid was first. It was pyramid art, pyramid gallery. gallery. Mm-hmm. Then it became pyramid gallery and books. And then we moved to the River Market District. We decided to. You were the first to move to the River Dark. Yes, we of... were on the first floor. We were next to where. The Museum of Discovery. We were there before the Museum of Discovery. And, you know, several restaurants on the Inevitable. So we outlived all those. It's a beautiful and place it's a to beautiful have an art gallery. gallery. Yes, it was. And, and the beauty of it was we initially, we came from Main Street and we had a sign on our building because we wanted to build the space, but we didn't get the loan. Forgot to take the sign down and someone bought the building. So had to move. There we go. That's so, the place on Main Street. That was the place on Main Street, 1308 Main Street. And so we moved into the River Market District and we got to build out the space the way we wanted to. So it was kind of like the best of both worlds. So I still got a new space, wasn't mine, but I was able to. And we were right in the center of that building. And mm-hmm. it was it was smaller, very compact. But, you know, we got the job done and we grew our business there. And Is that uh, when you changed your name? Yes. From Pyramid? From Pyramid. Well, I kept art. Pyramid. I kept Pyramid. I read an article that said, you know, if you believe in your business, put your name on it. And it also said, you got to be sure that people know what you do is in your name. So I had all this space. I said, okay, I see it here. Hearn Fine Art. And then Pyramid Art Books and Custom Framing, again, explains I kept my roots in Pyramid because Pyramid came from the fact that the pyramids are always going to be there. You Mm -hmm. go to Egypt, they've been there. They begin in the beginning of time, so I figured everlasting. That's why I put pyramid in the beginning. Well, and most, I think I read where you said most art galleries don't last more than five, five years. years. Five years is the turning point of and when you're going to make it. And and so you, now we're starting on year 31. We opened in 1988. So, I mean, but every year is just like the beginning. Every year is the new year for me. So I, I can't really, I know it's been 30 years, but I say I, I hope I have 30 more years. What was it like starting your business? What I mean, did you think, how do you even, did you use your own money? Did you think, this is this is going to be harder than I think it is? Or did you think it was going to be easy and it turned out to be harder than you thought? That's well, what really most people didn't, say. It was a challenge. It was something that my husband wanted to do. He wanted me to help him. Someone had to um, be that person that actually had a real job that had to support the family. So I knew that was him. And so I had the opportunity to take this dream that he had and it became mine. And I just, I taught myself the business of art and the business of just being in business at all. And, you know, working as an intensive care nurse, you had to understand how to prioritize what needed to be done. So that really prepared me to be a business owner. Um, I went in with so many unknowns. If I probably had known the unknowns, I probably would never have done it. What was different that you think that, what was something that happened that you thought, wow, I didn't expect that? I I think that when I sold my first piece of original art, I was just completely shocked. (laughs) I was like, oh my God, it didn't take probably, probably six months. In that, because, you know, we were selling prints and posters and, you know, the whole just getting to understand and then meeting artists. And as my uh, knowledge of business and art grew, I realized that I was doing my customers a disservice by not offering them original art. Because art is the basis of our civilization. It tells our story. And why would you spend $300 on a print on a $50 print? When you can own an original. Yeah. And you want that and it builds generational wealth. So it's a wealth building piece that art, if you are interested in collecting. And, you know, the more art, you know, there were so many artists that had never been to Arkansas that we brought and we gave them um, fine art exhibitions and they met long life 
you know, friends because of just coming just because of our existence. So that's why I had to differentiate the pyramid art, the decorative art from the fine art to move into another level and just expose myself to other people who didn't necessarily want to show in a frame shop. Yeah. When um, when did you decide that you wanted to be an appraiser? Well, that came in 2004. Um, so you've been my in business, youngest, uh, let's see, 18, 16 years yes. now. And people would come to me, what's this worth? What's this worth? I bought this from you 10 years ago. What is it worth now? And I realized that that was something I, I needed to teach myself. I needed to go and figure out how to how to do this appropriately. So I went to NYU and I did a six week intensive course. Did you live up there? Yes. Stay there for six weeks. Oh, how fun. I took my um, youngest daughter. She was, a, I think she was a sophomore in our junior in high school. And so she went with me and she stayed with actually her first babysitter in Connecticut. So she stayed with her and I went to NYU and I used to see her on the weekends. Did I you think. stay in a dorm? I did. I how did. old are you when you're doing this? Let's see. I don't remember. It was 2004. Doing the math. I had to be in my 40s. How adventurous. Yeah. But I needed to know how to do it. And I wasn't the online person. And I wanted, you know, the idea of going there for six weeks. They took us all over New York. They took us to, you know, every museum, auction house. And I just learned how to do it. And you came home or you changed? um, Yes, I was ready to be home. I loved I know why I live in Arkansas, and Mm -hmm. I love Arkansas, definitely. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a six-week adventure. So how do artists, how do you find artists for your shows? You went to New York and met some. Is it all just networking? Well, it's a lot of networking. You meet artists who know other artists. And my goal is, you know, I probably have about 55 to 60 artists that I've worked with over the lifetime of the gallery. And my goal is to work with artists who are passionate about what they do. They have a signature technique. You know their work without looking at them. Then we recognize it. And, you know, having, teaching people how to invest in themselves and generational wealth, you got to have all levels of art. So that's why I have, you know, emerging mid-career and master artists so that you can move in all circles and educate yourself so uh, all of that. What, what so, would you say something? What was the first one? Something mid and then emerging. Master, emerging. So that's, know, that's the affordable the, ones. Well, I would say all of them can be affordable because, you know, we have that famous, uh, we call it installment plan. Some people call it layaway. Oh, I see. You can do whatever you want if you want a piece of art. Mm-hmm. You know, when you go, some people, when you go buy a car, do you go in a, do you go buy a car and say, I'll just take that one and write a check for $30,000 or $40,000? I you wish go I did. in there. I wish I could. With an idea that you're going to pay on it, right? But the thing about art as opposed to a car, when you get that piece of art on your wall at home, it's going to be worth more than that car. Yeah, it is. You know, so I say Uber, ride the bus, buy art. Three different perspectives on art on this edition of Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. Broadcaster John Kane, poet Chris James, gallery owner Garbo Hearn. Thank you for listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. See you next week. You've been listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. For links to resources you heard discussed on today's show, go to flagandbanner.com, select radio, and choose today's guest. Carrie's goal is simple, to help you live the American dream. 